0: Hello and welcome to another edition of our Lost in Science Summer Series. This week we have a double dose of Australian animals, a double dose of Australian animal genetics and a double dose of Claire. Uh, so Claire is going to be talking to Dr. Kylie Cairns about the genetics of dingoes and what they can show us about how closely related they are to other dog species and how interbred those species are. And Claire also talks to Dr. Joe Sumners from Museums Victoria about the eastern earless dragon and uh, how endangered it is. So dragon hunting and dingoes on this episode of our Lost in Science summer series. Please stay tuned.
1: Australian dingoes are iconic in our environment as an apex predator. They are our own native dog. But over time, we've seen conservation and management decisions about the dingo be informed by an understanding that dingoes breed with wild dogs and create hybrid animals. But new genetic research published this week throws this assumption out the window And to talk us through this research, we are joined by the lead author, Dr. Kylie Cairns, Research Fellow at the University of New South Wales. Kylie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. What makes a dingo a dingo? Well, so dingoes have been
2: in Australia for thousands of years, uh, anywhere from 5,000 to 11,000 years. Uh, And they've been isolated from domestic dogs for that time period. So I guess what makes dingoes special is their evolutionary, uh, you know, history and isolation in Australia. Uh, And domestic dogs are different because they've been shaped by humans into the perfect pet uh, through artificial selection or selective breeding.
1: They are two distinct species, but they can interbreed. Well, they're two distinct lineages.
2: Some people think they're different species. Some people Mm -hmm. don't. I'm on the camp of they're distinct from dogs, so they should have their own species name, can be considered different, but that's quite controversial. They can definitely interbreed, but whilst a lot of people would think that species can't interbreed, a lot of them actually can. So wolves and coyotes can interbreed Mm. jackals can interbreed or basically a lot of the canids can interbreed and it sort of seems to be something unusual maybe about them that they are able to reproduce and create fertile offspring unlike a lot of other sort of species
1: that can't do that how did you do it I mean obviously you must have um, gone out and found a lot of dingoes
2: well I was lucky that I didn't have to go out and find them most I had a lovely community of uh, volunteers and private citizens and wildlife managers and dog trappers and landholders and government agencies who sort of answered a call out or a you know from me saying could people give me samples Um, I already had a network because I'd obviously done my PhD in studying dingoes but um yeah and then it sort of just went from there like people got in touch with me and told me they had some or i might contact people on social media and then they would send them to me and because i'd worked in a dna sequencing lab already i knew the sorts of platforms that i could use uh and i chose this one it's called a SNP chip and basically what it does is it looks at hundreds of thousands of dna markers or dna sites along the genome and you get the same markers for each animal at this, sa- you know, every time you do it. So it's really good because you can build this database of information that you can compare between labs and um, you know, every time you do it, you're going to get the same result or you should get very close to the same result. And then we put the, we put all the data into the, into the programs uh, to, to analyze yeah. them and, and instead of finding a lot of dog ancestry we found a lot of dingo ancestry so it was quite a surprise
1: what's the significance of that
2: previous studies had suggested that there were very few pure dingoes remaining in parts of Australia particularly New South Wales and Victoria but what we found is that in areas where we had thought there were no dingoes left or very few we found a lot so in Victoria we found 88% of our samples were pure dingoes so that was like a a huge difference and similarly in New South Wales we found 62% were pure. Wow. The other thing that's really interesting is looking at the animals that are falling between pure dingoes and uh, dogs or between hybrids. And what we noticed is that there were less animals in the middle and more animals closer to the dingo side of the spectrum. Um, and that indicates that the, the dingoes are breeding back to each other as opposed mm-hmm. to breeding with other hybrids or breeding with dogs. That's quite interesting because it suggests that there's some sort of behavior or barrier uh, maybe selecting for more dingoiness in the population. don't know but it's pretty cool.
1: Did you see any other sort of geographical differences? Yeah so at the moment I mean we only have
2: like 400 dingo samples that we've looked at and I think we'll need to go back and do more intensive sampling to look at this but we found four different uh, geographic populations. So We called them West, East, South and Big Desert. So very creative with those names. You know, one was found broadly in Northern, Central and Western Australia. So that's the West one. Um, Then we found one along the Eastern seaboard of Australia in New South Wales and um, Southern Queensland. And then we found a South one, which was sort of uh, Southern New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria. And we found this really weird, interesting population that we called Big Desert because that's the first place we found it, um, which is sort of in Western Victoria and Narcat, so uh, southern South Australia, that sort of area. Uh, And it's really interesting because we knew there was some geographic variation in dingoes from some of my earlier work, um, but we didn't realise there was as much as
1: apparently is. And you were talking about the tool that you use, the new genetic tool that's sort of updated from the 90s and sort of the genetic capabilities that we had then. Can you talk to us a bit more about what it is, how reliable and how accurate it is? So just to give an idea of the scale
2: of the difference in the two technologies, the method that we were using before now looked at 23 different DNA markers and uh, the one that I'm using now, we used 195,000 DNA markers. So a huge difference. It basically, besides that, the actual analysis techniques, not that much different. Um, You use pretty similar like software programs for modeling, but it's really about the scale of the information that you're getting. uh, And the fact that it's a bit less labor intensive to gather it. So I can gather, all of those 195,000 markers at the same time, using like it's just called a SNP chip, <laughs> um, compared to the other one, which was much more labor-intensive to do in the lab. In terms of what that means for the DNA testing, it means that the result is much more robust. It's much more accurate. You just have so much more information about each animal that your estimates and modeling is much more, you know, reliable and accurate. Um, And you can build confidence intervals around that as well. You've got so much more data. Exactly. So much more data. And you can account for the different types of variation that might be being seen in the data. So, for example, the geographic variation within dingoes, but also the variation between dingoes and dogs. It's Like the difference between using a
1: magnifying glass and a microscope the two different methods, I guess, the older genetic testing and the new genetic testing, were you able to do any comparisons with the current samples that you have?
2: Yes, we did. So we had 100 animals that we had tested on both methods and it was really interesting to compare the results, um, but a bit concerning for our knowledge about dingoes. So when we compared the results um, this set of dingoes we found that the old method frequently misidentified pure dingoes as being hybrids and so what that really is telling us is that all of this data that we've collected over the last 20 years doing DNA tests of you know over 8,000 samples across the country um, those results are not reliable and they're not accurate and so it means that we need to go back and we need to redo our genetic surveys using up-to-date methods because um, the previous method suggested there was a lot of hybrids because it was misidentifying pure dingoes as hybrids.
1: What do your findings do you think mean for updating, I guess, you know, conservation efforts relating to dingoes, updating policies or management? And...
2: Yeah, so what it suggests to us is that uh, in the wild, there's very, there seems to be very few um, animals that have little dog dingo ancestry. Uh, and there's very few feral dogs uh, as well Uh, and so that means in my opinion we need to be adjusting our policy and legislation to make sure that we're being clear about the animals that are being targeted through management Uh, and and the best way to do that would be to just change the names. So instead of using the word wild dog in legislation, we can use the word dingo and feral dog to refer to the different animals. And I think that that's important because it also means that we are acknowledging that dingoes are a native animal, which they are, uh, compared to feral dogs, which are an invasive feral animal. Uh, So I think that's really important that, that that happens. Whether or not it will happen remains to be seen though.
1: By management, are we talking, I mean, one of the biggest types of management of, you know, quote-unquote wild dogs is 1080 baiting. So is that conversation happening?
2: I don't know if it's happening yet. I think I'm hoping that this research will lead to a broader conversation about how we are balancing the conservation and management of dingoes across you know new south wales and basically all of the states Uh, at the moment there are particularly in new south wales extensive 1080 aerial baiting programs being rolled out across national parks Uh, and i think a lot of people aren't aware of that because it's called wild dog baiting Mm. Uh, and also generally it's said that they only bait the boundaries of the parks but that's not actually true (laughs) but if you change that language and you say you know we're talking about aerial baiting dingoes I think that the general community would have a different opinion about whether or not they support that and I think that it would mean that there's more transparent discussion about what's happening.
1: Just in a nutshell why is it so important to have dingoes present in the environment?
2: Yeah so Dingoes have basically adapted to the Australian environment and they now fulfill the role of the top land-based predator. That means they're involved in biodiversity regulation, which is something like you know regulating large herbivores that has impacts on the types of vegetation, which then flows on to um, the you know benefits for small, small marsupials, birds, reptiles, that sort of thing. Uh, dingoes can also have a role in suppressing foxes and cats and keeping them out of the environment, or at least suppressing their numbers to a lower level. They probably don't remove them entirely, uh, but they definitely have an impact in many places in Australia.
1: Where to next for your research? So
2: I'm still collecting
1: samples.
2: (laughs) I'm still carrying, like, continuing the research, but particularly trying to focus in areas where I don't have samples or building uh, more samples in areas where we think that we might need more information. I'm also collaborating with people overseas. I'm involved in an ancient DNA project hopefully looking at the origins of dingoes compared to wolves and ancient dogs. I'm involved in looking at um, the dogs that are found in Papua New Guinea to see how they might be related to dingoes. We know that the A highland wild dog or New Guinea singing dog that's found up in the mountains of Papua New Guinea is like the dingo's cousin, but we don't know how many there are and so we've been, I've been working with a PhD student there who is collecting samples from local villages so we're going to be working on that and I'm also doing a bit of work on the poo of dingoes and foxes to find out more about what those predators are eating in the in the environment, uh, using DNA. So we get the poo and then we DNA test it to see what they've been eating.
1: Well, Kylie, thank you so much for chatting with us today about dingoes and dog dingoes and dogs uh, and everything in between and best of luck with the next stages of research we cannot wait to hear what happens um and we'll keep updated um from you hopefully in the future yeah thank you very much i think we're lost we're not lost not even any short-range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course
2: a transmitter of that sort isn't
1: exactly standard equipment Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. I said it's it's mostly on the theoretical side.
0: Well, so far.
1: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science conservation stories don't get much better than the discovery of a species thought to be extinct. And this happened in February this year with the rediscovery of the Victorian grassland earless dragon. Now with me to discuss the conservation and groundbreaking biobank genetics efforts that go into saving the most endangered reptile in the world, we have Museum Victoria's Senior Manager of Genetic Resources, Dr. Joe Sumner, Joe, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, Joe, tell us a bit about the Victorian grassland earless
3: dragon. Um, so this is a really cute little dragon. They only live a couple of years. They're quite small. They're found in, in grassland regions and they live inside spider burrows. So they're actually not out and about very often, which I think is probably part of the reason why they've been so hard to find. Yeah, at the beginning of this year, some ecologists were doing surveys in uh, out to the west of Melbourne um, and came across a lizard that clearly wasn't one that they expected to see there. And they had an inkling of what it might be and sent a few photographs to some ecologists that they knew. Um, a team was put together pretty quickly um, with Zoos Victoria um, leading the charge. Yeah, so it, it all came together quite quickly. So why is this particular group of lizards so threatened? Because they live in grassland, um, native Australian grassland, and something like 99% of native grassland has been cleared for mostly for agriculture. So it's just it's lost its habitat because the it looks like open clear paddock. Um, it kind of some grass and looks a little bit scrappy. Um, mm. it, it hasn't been protected in the same way that that. Um, native forests have. Um, so it, But it has a whole um, suite of endemic species that are also critically endangered. So we really need to save our last little patches of, of native grasslands and these gorgeous animals that you get in them. So you talked a bit about sort of the captive
1: breeding program that Zoos Victoria have in place for the Victorian grassland earless dragon. So what is the role of the museum in the conservation of the dragon?
3: I guess we've been leading all the genetic side of things. So there's a couple of different things we're doing at the site where the dragons were first found, we we did some swabbing um, around the the spider burrows to see whether we can get some environmental DNA. Um, So we're working to see if that's maybe another way we can identify other sites where the lizards might be. If we can't actually see them, maybe we can um, swab around and look for their DNA that's kind of I guess, sloughed off when there's skin in the environment. So that's one stream that we're looking at. Another one is we've taken some some tail tips from the lizards because that's a really good way to get DNA without doing too much damage to the lizards. So we worked with Zoos Victoria on getting those, those tail tip samples and that's allowed us to positively identify the, the dragons as the Victorian grassland earless dragon by comparing it with DNA that we've managed to get from some really old specimens in mm. the museum. So this is one of the beauty beautiful things about museums is that we have this historical collection and the technology for DNA work and DNA sequencing means that we can actually get DNA out of some really old specimens. So we were able to extract DNA from a specimen from the early last century and compare wow. it to the DNA of this these um, animals that were found recently and and match it up and say, yep, that is definitely um, the species that we think it is. And also with those tail tips, we're doing some other work, which is a bit like DNA fingerprinting. So we can have a look at the relationships um, among those animals. There's now 16 of them at um zoos victoria that's the beginning of the breeding program um, we will be able to help them work out how best to manage that breeding population i think there's only four females so it's really they have to be really careful in how they how they set up their breeding program um, so we'll be able to look at the relationships between those animals using their their dna the bit that i love and i think is the coolest and i'm most excited about is that um over the last year museums Victoria have set up a, a a live cell lab so we have a tissue collection at the museum which we which is held in the um, Ian Potter Australian Wildlife Biobank and that we've got about uh, 50,000 tissue samples from wildlife wow. so this is um, anytime um, somebody gets a, a scale or a Ear clip or a feather or a, um, a toe snip from, a fr- um, from animals that they're doing research on DNA research, we put those in our biobank and we freeze them down so that we can look at the DNA later. And researchers around the world can actually access the DNA and the tissue samples that we have in our biobank. But what we want to do is not just be able to look at the diversity that's there or even the genetic diversity as it's lost but to actually have living cells Mm. in our biobank that we can then put that genetic diversity back into wild populations in the future.
1: A lot of our listeners would have heard of seed banks as a way of, I guess, holding on to precious genetic diversity. Um, Maybe not so much have heard that that's an option with, uh, with animals and with living tissues. So how is this possible?
3: Yeah. So I think um, the, the trick is making sure that the way you freeze cells is done. Um, so that the cells can then be thawed and are still alive. So normally mm-hmm. if, you th- if you if you you stick something in the freezer, you know, it gets ice crystals and that actually happens <laughs> inside the cells as well. So if mm-hmm. you freeze something, you just whack it in the freezer and our, our biobank goes down to minus 200 degrees. Wow. So it's really cold. Um, your normal freezer is only about um, minus 20. So it's, <laughs> it's much, it's much colder. If you can freeze things down in a specific medium and at a and a pace, a particular pace, then those crystals won't form and then they won't split open the cells as they form. So what you get is, is a cell that can then be thawed out again um, slowly and carefully in a particular way so that the cell's are alive again when you thaw mm. them out and you can do this with a whole range of different cells so you can do it this is like ivf in some ways so yeah you can, you can freeze um sperm so in fact we've been again working with zoos victoria and we've got um sperm samples from their frog um breeding programs so we have also have some of those those Frog samples um, and and the genetic diversity that is in those in those samples now um, in our biobank, so that when the zoos program if they need diversity that's found in one of those animals and they want that back into their breeding program, then they'll be able to access. And so that's one part of what we do. But the one that we've um, been working on and that is is pretty cool is is actually growing cells from skin. So these are called fibroblasts. So the initial program that we were looking at was growing live cells from ear snips from mammals. So little antichinous, mas- sort of the small marsupials, but also some native Australian rodents as well. And by growing those cells, we can grow enough that we can then freeze those cells down. And the hope is that by having those living cells in our biobank, in the future, we'll be able to change those into something called a pluripotent stem cell or an ipsy cell. And those cells then have the capacity to be changed into any other cell type. So Does that include gamete. So- oh, that includes yeah, gametes. Yeah, that so includes eggs gametes. or, or yep. sperm. Eggs or sperm. So that's sort of the pathway wow. um, that we can use living cells that we grow from an ear snip of a, of a native mammal or the tail tip of a Victorian grassland illus dragon. And then by growing those cells, um, we can then, in the future, researchers hopefully will be able to transfer those, change them into ipsy cells and then back into gametes. And then those gametes can be put back into the wild populations. But unless we start now and we actually bank down the genetic diversity that is available in populations now, then we won't have the same um, diversity and opportunities to put that back in the future. So even though we don't have all the technologies down now, we really, really need to bank as much genetic diversity down in our biobank now as as we possibly can.
1: We're not going to get any more genetic diversity
3: as we we go along? Well, we do. I mean, that's what evolution does is it builds it. But what's happening at the moment is that um, we're losing populations so quickly and with... um, Climate change, we need or we need it it can't keep up, evolution can't keep up with the changes that are occurring. Um, so we we've got to try and give it a little helping hand by holding on to some of the diversity that we have. It's a forward-focused
1: and fascinating technological initiative. Um, are there any limitations to the biobank? I mean, apart from the fact that the um the pluripotency research isn't exactly where we want it at the moment.
3: I, I think there's there's lots it takes I think every species is a little bit different in what what it needs and how we um grow this the, the medium that they need to grow in the first place and then exactly how to freeze them down so it's likely that we have to do it species by species um and do a little bit of tweaking with everything so it, it can be quite a slow process um and but we we need to start and we've we've already got um I think 70. Four vials of of living cells in our wow. biobank from this last twelve months of work with with mammals, um, and we've got uh, two dragon species and an albatross and a bralga as well. <laughs> so those ones are just ones that that were um, I think they they were taken to zoos Victoria to the vets because they'd been brought in by wildlife carers, um, and they unfortunately didn't make it. They they both died. So then they were given to the museum, and as a museum, we want to maximize all the possible uses that we can, we can have with those, those specimens, because they're so rare. Um, So one of the things we did was we tried to grow some cells from them and we were successful because we have this lab set up and we're ready to go and really looking forward to having, you know, making, making those opportunities where they, where they are. Um, And is this the first of its kind in Australia? Yes, it is. (laughs) Melbourne Museum is the only museum in Australia that has a biobank. So there's other museums that, that have a frozen tissue collection, um, but they keep those in sort of minus eighty mechanical freezers. What we have is this is this liquid nitrogen cryo storage facility. So that's the only way you can keep cells at the temperature that's low enough to um, preserve them um, in, into the future. That sort of it's a temperature that stops all biological activity. So they are just in stasis until we are ready to bring bring those cells back again. So. Yeah. And we're the you know the only museum as well that has this cell lab, this live cell facility, which is pretty, pretty exciting. It's
1: incredibly exciting. What's next for uh conservation efforts and genetic research for the Victorian grasslands
3: earless dragon? One really cool piece of work that we are able to do because we have those cells growing, those live cells growing, is we're able to sequence the entire genome of this animal. And that is going to give us all sorts of information that will help with the ongoing conservation um, of the species. So it's like it's a bit of a dream come true that we've been able to get from an a potentially extinct animal to um, a conservation program and having the entire genome sequenced in about six months. So I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're able to do that.
1: That's so exciting. And I imagine once that genome is sequenced and published, then you know it opens the door for so many other researchers and scientists to be able to do uh, further work and conservation um, genetics on that species.
3: Absolutely, absolutely, and we we work with a whole slew of um, researchers, um, and all this information becomes publicly available because it's really important that all that that research is is available, and this kind of data is available for for um, any researchers.
1: Well, Joe, thank you so much for speaking to us today about the Elis dragon, the biobank, um, your work. It's incredibly important, and um, you know, very exciting as well. What a what a wonderful story of conservation! Thank you so much.
0: that is all we have time for this week on lost in science thank you for joining us in getting lost if you have any questions or suggestions for the team get in touch with us by email we are lostinsci at gmail.com you can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on twitter or you can find us on the ubiquitous facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get... Lost Lost in in Science!